Aujourd'hui, dans le garage, nous avons de la belle Provence, Maître Valérie Acoste, et de la capitale du Canada, Maître Biagio del Greco. Qu'il y a tout le français que je connaissais, despite the bilingual abilities of today's guests, I will be proceeding in English. Valérie Acosta is a criminal defense lawyer practicing in Montreal at the law firm of Jelena Leclerc Paoli. Valérie has defended clients charged with all criminal court offenses and is recognized around the Barreau de Quebec as a formidable advocate. Biagio del Greco is a partner at the Ottawa-based firm of Little McGarry del Greco, where he prides himself on thorough preparation and high-level advocacy. As a bilingual lawyer, Biagio's practice expands across provincial borders from Ontario to Quebec. In today's garage, Biagio and Val discuss the difficulties in sentencing, tough losses, and going to court during the pandemic. Whether you're driving your Jeep Grand Cherokee, shredding your Stratocaster, or drafting a leave application, step into the garage, listen to the experts, and get it to them. Val, Biagio, I can't thank you enough for being here with us in the garage today. Thanks for having us, Marco. Thanks for having us. And for our listeners, both these uh, fine advocates have come in from Montreal and Ottawa, respectively, to join us in studio, and we really appreciate that. Um, Justice Cooper, before he uh, was appointed, had aspirations of expanding the law garage beyond uh, the local bar. And I'm really happy to see that there are counsel out there and, and other jurisdictions that are willing to come in and share their experiences. And so I'm really, really happy that you guys uh, have come in. So thanks again. Well, thank you uh, for the uh, for the platform, the literal microphone. <laughs> the forms and bios. Well, and also, and I, I should thank you here at the beginning for your uh, your your great effort to uh, to have this uh, a bilingual introduction for us. Was it good? I, I think it was great. I'm impressed. I mean, I I, I, my, I mean, my French not as good as Val, so you should probably ask her. C'est impressionnant. Merci. De rien. As our listeners might have uh, observed already, we have a pre-existing relationship. Uh, all of us are graduates of the University of Ottawa Faculty of Law at different times, but we were all there at the same time at one point. And I think that's where we all kind of met and connected for the first time. Do you recall that, either of you? Uh, I do. It would have been my first year, so 2005, 2006. And I think at that point, Marco, you were in your third and final year. Same as me. And uh, Val as well, yeah. We all took a separate path into our um, current positions as criminal defense lawyers. So I want to start with Val. How did you get there? How did you become a criminal defense lawyer in Montreal? Studied in Ottawa. Finished in 2006. Did my Barreau de Québec also in Ottawa. And then moved back to Montreal to actually uh, begin in civil law for about a year, but it became clear very quickly that criminal law was the field that I wanted to practice in. So essentially just made my way through different small offices before I started practicing for Morneau L'Ecuyer La Legia, which is the office where I worked for 12 years. And um, that's it. That's pretty much what I've been doing exclusively, criminal law, since 2008. How did you decide to make the transition from civil law to criminal law? What was it? <clears throat> I think it was clear back in law school that that's what I wanted to do. Um, but studying in Ottawa and having to 
find an articling student position in Montreal was a little more difficult in the criminal field. So it was easier to start in civil law. So that's what I did. But I, I think from the first year in law school with our first mandatory classes in crim, it was, it was obvious and clear for me that that's what I wanted to do ultimately. Yeah. And what about you, Biagio? Uh, I mean, I always knew I wanted to do criminal defense is uh, the purpose of attending law school. I always say it's, uh, it was sort of a, a gift and a curse. And on one, one end, you know what you want to do, you can focus. On the other, it makes it really hard to attend uh, real estate classes and, uh, and, and other, other more generalized practices of law when you know you're not going to be using them. So I didn't. And that made the bar ads exam an especially grueling task for me because I was learning everything for the first time after three <laughs> years. Uh, I, I'm originally from Montreal. The plan was, I, I was in uh, Common Law Francais at Ottawa U. The plan was to do a, a, an extra year of the national program, get my droit civil, go back to Montreal. And just by the time I was done, my third year of law school, having worked at the legal aid clinic in both the civil and criminal divisions, getting a taste of uh, attending the courthouse, uh, starting basically starting to do what I wanted to do, um, I had I decided to just stick around and, and forego the extra year and the return home. But do you need um, do you need your droit civil to practice in Quebec? Uh, you out of law school, you do. Uh, there is an equivalency at this point, I suppose. At this point, uh, that I could, frankly, for quite some time now that I could have applied for. But it's, I mean, as I think anyone who's built a, a criminal law defense practice uh, knows, it's, it's, it's hard to uproot yourself and start from scratch once you've already established yourself. But so you're able to run trials in Quebec, though. You, you do have a practice that expands to Quebec. Some, some. I mean, Ottawa's right on, right on the border. So uh, there's, I mean, the Gatineau Courthouse is in walking distance from the Ottawa Courthouse on a good day. Um, so what you can do is you can apply for um, a special dispensation for a case-by-case basis if you're not a member of both bars. Some people are. Um, and I think, off the top of my head, I think you, you get something like eight or ten cases a year that you can do if you, uh, if you apply to the Bago for special dispensation. So all, all you really need is just proof of a member of good standing in the law society, proof of insurance, and you cut them a check for like 200 bucks, and, and then they'll let you take on case-by-case. So that's an important piece of information for any lawyers who are practicing in those jurisdictions that may be able to uh, practice or, or conduct trials in, in Quebec, both in English or French. Um, they should know that. It's an opportunity if, if that opportunity arises. Yeah, with a word of caution of uh, make sure you carefully review the, uh, the rules of procedure uh, on the Quebec side because they're not always... Uh, they're not always the same as ours. So, and and they don't like uh, when uh, I guess when Ontario lawyers come in, uh, and uh, not not through arrogance, but maybe it's perceived that way that we we have a, uh, a our way of doing things, and we we think we can impose it on other jurisdictions. So you can you can imagine judges up in rural parts of Quebec say, you know, we have a way of doing things. You better stick to it. What do you say to that, Val? I think they're right. <laughs> <laughs> What excites you about the practice of criminal law, Val? Hmm. Not a day. Every day is different. Every case is different. 
we're dealing with people on a daily basis. Obviously, the pandemic has made that maybe a little more difficult in the past year and a half. But for the most part, it's the human contact. And the fact that, you know, even though most of our clients are facing, you know, serious accusations and and do not, uh, we don't necessarily agree with their way of of doing things, I think we still make a difference by representing them when, you know, no one else has often any hope left in them. So I think that's the, uh, the most important part or what excites me the most about the practice. But mostly the, the diversity and the never knowing where the day is going to lead you and where a trial will take you and, you know, a little bit of uncertainty in your yeah. in your day to day keeps exciting. you exciting. Yeah. yeah. What about you, uh, Biaj? I think I think uh, those two things that uh, Val just said I think are the same for me. It's the it's it's never mundane. It's never routine. Even even if you can predict what's happening that day, it's always going to take on some twist you couldn't have exp- expected, and that keeps you sharp, keeps you on your toes. And then you know, feeling and hopefully sometimes feeling like you're actually making a difference, even if it's a, it's a small one in the grand scheme of things. And sometimes when the stakes are high, it, it gives you that extra motivation. Um, so it's, especially for someone like me that, uh, I, I, I think I need to, that, that extra motivation to come from other parts of the job. I'm, I'm not really an internally motivated person. Uh, I don't, I don't get up early to go for runs. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> As, as 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 other people on this table uh, might have as part of their routines, so so it's 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 good for me to have a job that you know that you know the fires are lit for me, and and, and now I got to put them out. Um, yeah. Well, what does that say about the? Is there a particular personality type that's better suited to this profession? I I think there is. I I, I and that's not to say that there's one type of person that can do this job and do this job well um you know um our 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 bar you know, regardless of, of where we are i think is is a real meritocracy we we take in and, and we respect people that that do the job well and honorably and for the right reasons um and you know if if, if you're 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 one of those people and you're in you're in in terms of of what it takes to get there i just I don't know how to describe it. I've, I've, I've thought about it often, but I, I think if, if you're a criminal defense lawyer, if you're around criminal defense lawyer, there's just, there's just, there's a common thread, uh, in terms of a, a type of personality. Thick skin? Thick skin, certainly. Thick skin, certainly. Um, that, that, the, the, the desire to, to, to argue even, even a, a losing point, uh, um, and just, you know, find, you know, We've all, we've all had cases that we or trials we had to run that we knew were losers, and sometimes it's hard to you know what am I going to say? What could I possibly say here? And so you put the work in and you try to find an angle, and by the end you've convinced yourself that this is I'm, there's no way I lose this. And then of course you do, and you should. Uh, but I think it yeah it takes I think a, a person that just can can sell themselves on that whole um, on that whole argument because then the argument becomes everything. Sometimes finding something to say is is the win. Yeah, yeah. Sometimes finding something to say is sometimes your client looks at you and after you make your submissions, your client says, "You know, I I think I got a shot here. I 
that that to me is a win like if i at least i know that he thinks or she thinks that we have done everything we can and everything that they, possible they yeah. have a shot what about you val i agree with that but i think you also have to be very sensitive to human misery and and the reality that most of our clients did not have the upbringing that we did and um i think it it's the foundation or it's the basis for most of our clients is that lack of resources or, or or background or family support that often led them to stray away. They so, make a poor decision and yeah. that spirals kind of out yeah. of control. So understanding that from the get-go, I think will help us as lawyers make submissions in front of a court. And, and I think judges are very sensitive to that, obviously. But I think they need to be reminded that the accused often doesn't have the same um, abilities or the same was not as lucky as we are as lawyers, judges, prosecutors. Do you find yourself sometimes feeling like surprised that you have to explain to a court things such as the consequences of of drug addiction or the consequences of being from an indigenous background or the consequences like do you find surprise that after all that we know that we still have to stand up there and and articulate those submissions I, i think most judges get it i think the bigger task is making sure that they're not just paying lip service to it um, you know, I, I don't think I've, I've had to quote from Gladue and I've never been challenged once I raised Gladue as a sentencing principle on whether or not it should apply to my client and, and why. So I think that happens, like the access to the principle happens pretty quickly uh, or easily rather in terms of then what happens and how it's applied and what credit is given, I think is the bigger battle because it's, it's easy for a judge to say, I've, I've factored that into it or I accept and, and making sure and holding the, the judge to some account that you're not just paying lip service to the principle of whether it's, it, like I said, Gladue or, or, or what you said, Marco, in issues of drug addiction or mental health. Um, I think that's harder because it's 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 not a mathematical formula and there's no there's no set value to it so they understand it but they don't consider it when it comes to sentencing or rendering any type of decision N- not in a general way but i think it, it's it's something that we do observe often do you notice that all of these factors that we we've been discussing as the stakes go up in the case, those factors become less, seem to be less considered. Yeah, and, and, I, and I think, unfortunately, I guess for our clients, is the case law seems to call for that on some level, right? As the, the seriousness of the offense, uh, in terms of whether it's violence, uh, especially in domestic violence, et cetera, um, the, the, the more serious the offense is on that scale, the less impact in terms of mitigation factors like um, marginalized persons or mental health and, and drug addiction are, are ought to come into play, at least according to the case law. So, um, you know, that being said, I think it's still, uh, it's still a nail we need to hit 
uh, as hard as we can. And and if the if the judges are going to dismiss it, um, you know, my thought is make it difficult for them to dismiss it. Put everything out in front. Put everything of them. out there and 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 sort of challenge the court. Um, and most, I mean, frankly, most judges, I think, understand it and want to do it. But it, I think the, the really the the you know where the rubber meets the road is is now what now what do I do with this information? I have this information. I appreciate your 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 client is uh, marginalized and has not had opportunities and has been um, you know had a difficult upbringing. But now what do I do with that? And I think that's what the judges struggle with the most. Those that care too. Even if they do get some kind of consideration, the system still makes you feel almost like you walked out of there. Even though you did everything you could, that maybe your client still kind of got a short end of the stick. Does that ever happen? Every day. And when it happens, how do you cope with that? How do you cope with that when you go home? I think you start. You have to start by being realistic about the of the fork, the possibilities, if we're talking sentencing here, um, the low end, the high end. And once you accept that, whatever is given that is in between is the reality. Um, that being said, um, how do you cope with that? You, I don't know. How do you cope with that, Pietro? <laughs> still working on it um i i, I think like well, one thing val just said that i think is uh is a, a major part of um what what you you're asking us marco is is setting your own reasonable expectations a lot of that comes with you know maturity and age and experience um you know i think you know when we we're a couple of years out everything was a travesty of justice and you have this unlimited well of anger and indignation that you can just draw from and after a while you you realize there's uh you know there's a bottom to that well and you gotta you gotta you gotta dole it out um when it really calls for it so so being disappointed i i agree with how happens very frequently if not always there are very there there the, the true wins are few and far between um but then putting into perspective, okay, how disappointed am I? And, and it could be very, and it could, sometimes it's, it's, these things can be devastating and it, it could really hit you. Uh, but you, you, you know, you can't take each loss as a, as a fatal punch. And, and that's something that I struggled with for a long time because the highs are never as high. I mean, I've talked to myself, but I think it's for most, true for most of us. The highs are never as high as the lows are low, right? You win a big case, you're really happy. And, and I tend to just move on and say, okay, good, what's next? I lose a big case, that sticks with me for a while. And you know, I, had to, I had to sort of reflect on, on it. Is, that, is that healthy and is that sustainable? What about you, Val? I agree with that. <clears throat> I think we're often, if not always, judged ourselves on our performance and that can be heavy on a daily basis and in the long run. And we have to remember that ultimately we're really just doing our best for the client and we have to deal with the evidence. We have to deal with the, if we're talking sentencing with the very little considerations that can be taken into account by the judge. And we can't make miracles. We're not, we're not, we're not gone. And ultimately 
I think once we accept and we inform the client properly of the possibilities, it makes it often easier to lose or not get exactly what we expected or wanted. Um, it's about being fair to ourselves as well. I used to joke around that I wanted to write a, a book for criminal defense lawyers called Learning to Lose. And then my friend said that that might be something you, you want to do after you retire. <laughs> I, 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 I tend I, to agree. Yeah. I don't know if you want that in the bookstore with your face on the jacket <laughs> with prospective clients walking by a chapter's window and you just see Marco. Yeah, that's, uh, that, that talked me out of it for sure. But it's hard to shake. Have you ever felt that you, know, you made a mistake that was fatal to a case that I don't want to get into any law society mistakes. I'm just saying, do <laughs> you ever feel like you probably didn't, your, your mistake was probably not as bad as you think it was, but in your mind, you're like, well, maybe if I did that differently, it would have been better. It could be tactical. It could be, does, does that ever come up? I think the biggest mistake for me is to accept for a client to testify and to present a defense when I truly don't believe in it. I truly think that it will make it worse, but the client is, is insisting on it. And ultimately, it's the client's case. No matter how much you prepare them or advise them not to go forward with it, in the end, it's their decision. And um, I don't think it's, it's the lawyer's mistake, but this being said, you're, you're still the one, you know, at bat and in front of ju- at the judge looking like you were supporting that defense and, you know, presenting it, so... That's probably what sticks to me the most. That's a difficult situation because ultimately it is their decision. And it really puts you in a difficult spot and compromises your, the way you might have to run your defense. What about you, Biaj? Um, I think that's another thing that um, has gotten easier to deal with with experience and, and maturity is, is the second-guessing yourself. Um, you know, the more cases you run... Uh, the more experience you have, you you you're better placed to really go back and and if you want to be honest with yourself and say no, you know what I th- I think I did everything I possibly could have here and and give yourself cut yourself a break. Uh, earlier on, I think it was it was again made it more difficult with each loss. Other than the disappointment, was the second guessing. You know, did I prepare enough? Uh, could I have done something different? What did I miss? When a when a judge even even if and even if you get it right when a judge doesn't latch on to one of your submissions could I phrase it differently could I presented it to this judge in a different way um, and th- that's still true now but I think it's less frequent and that's because um, you learn to understand through context and experience that you know I, th- I think I did I think I did what I needed to do and sometimes it just won't go your way. How do you get how do you get past that? Like do you discuss it with other colleagues? Do you yeah. forget about it or Yeah. I, I think no no the discussing I think that's the we have uh I mean being in in, in, in criminal defense is like is it's like a group therapy session. Uh, this is just really all it's all we do is talk shop. And and you know, for the, the younger lawyers out there, nobody wants to hear about your wins. I mean, frankly, all the lawyers out there, nobody wants to hear about your wins. If you're sitting around a table, nobody wants to, uh, you know, if, if it happened recently, we'll give you, we'll give you an adder boy or an adder girl, but we, we want to hear about the times you fell on your face because that, that's how we cope. That's, that's how we deal. Well, look, the, the purpose of season two of The Law Garage was specifically to have the conversations that 
I think we would be having if we saw each other in a courthouse, uh, in the courthouse lounge or having a drink somewhere. And frankly, I think Biagio hit the nail on the head where when you're with your colleagues, let's say you're working with somebody and they're saying, oh, I got to, I'm doing a trial here. Oh, how'd it go? Oh, it was great. You know, he got acquitted. You're happy for the person, and that's probably the end of the story. End of story. Yeah, we don't want to hear. Oh, and jo- and witness X said this, and I did this fantastic thing here. And I, did. I mean, eventually, if you're friends with a person through your conversations with them, they might say, for instance, you might be doing a case and say, "Well, how do I tackle this?" Oh, you know what worked for me once, and then they'll explain to you in that moment about this trial that did and it was successful because this is the angle that they took. That is when it becomes... It's instructive. It's instructive. You hear about somebody's win. But nobody really wants to hear about somebody bragging about a win right after they win because you're not really interested. But you're more interested, I think, in hearing about a loss. What went wrong. What went wrong. And and because you're going to learn from what that person thinks went wrong. Mm -hmm. Am I right, Val? Absolutely. Definitely. And I think we learn a lot more from our losses than from our wins. But, but but even more than you, and I agree, you do learn, I think, more from your defeats and others' defeats than you do from, from the wins. Um, but when you're sitting around, uh, you know, at the Ottawa courthouse, you know, we have, we have a little cafeteria table that's really just defense lawyers sit around. When you're sitting around there and you're, you're you know, you're telling your, you know, your war stories and, and, you know, this happened and, you know, I look like an idiot here or the judge did this to me, even if there's nothing informative or instructive that's coming out of the story, it's the it, it stuff sucks for everybody, but we're all in it together, and it's it's going to be fine. And, and that's there's a there's a you know the, you, the question was how do you deal how do you cope with the disappointments and the defeats and the, and the second guessing, knowing that there's other people going through the exact same thing, and they still get up and put on their boots every day and go back to it. I think that's what helps. So, since we're here, tell us about a loss that stuck with you, Val. <clears throat> January 2000, no, September 2019, beginning of a three-day trial that will ultimately finish in March of 2021. Oh, wow. It's recent. Recent. Three-day trial that didn't proceed in in September, October 2019, got postponed. Everything happened in this trial. The motion to exclude was denied. The Requests for postponements by the Crown that were contested were granted by the court. Uh, The Jordan application below ceiling also denied. And it it just got to a point where, you know, when you just don't know what to tell your client anymore, you've tried it all without making any promises. But reality is, it's, it's just not working. And I believe that we had so many grounds for appeal, but the client just could not go forward anymore and, you know, decided to settle before presenting a defense. So I think that, first of all, the amount of losses within the same trial that lasted forever, where I believe the defense was not responsible for any delay and ultimately not getting anything positive out of it is uh, the reason why it's still sticks to me six nine months later in the interest of um therapeutic uh (laughs) feelings here (laughs) just say the name of the judge we'll put a big bleep on it we'll edit that out thank you (laughs) you feel better now i do good a lot better (laughs) what about you got a loss oh yeah um 
my, mine is uh, fairly recent as well. Like we're talking three, four months ago. Um, might have been the biggest gut punch of my entire career. Uh, it's it's uh, a robbery case was an ID issue. Um, so it's a Kijiji rip. So the two the two complainants could not identify my client. So the only witness the Crown had was a former co-accused. Uh, so we're talking Vetrovec witness who, over the course of a cross-examination that, and uh, it went well, but that's only because there was a, an embarrassment of, of riches for me to cross-examine this guy on, uh, just admitted to lying to the police, admitted to lying under oath to another judge, admitted to lying under oath before our trial judge, admitted to framing an innocent person in this very case. And then says, but my client was involved in the robbery. Uh, and that's it. That's all the evidence that the Crown had. There's very limited other circumstantial evidence. And so we show up for the decision. And the judge starts ripping this witness, like trashing him. Tenuous grasp on reality. Can't open his mouth without saying something false. And, I mean, the writing was on the wall of, of where this was going. And he delivered about a... 20, 30-minute decision. And then when he got to the last line of his decision, said, but I believe him about this one thing, that, that the accused was there, and therefore I convict. And that just sunk me. And I was sitting in the body of the court, and I thank that there was COVID protocols that required me to wear a mask so he didn't see my face uh, and had the plexiglass between us so you couldn't really see what my reaction to this was. But that that was for for twenty minutes following. I, I I mean this upset me for more than twenty minutes. For twenty minutes, I considered never stepping foot in the courtroom again. When you think back to law school and learning criminal law, especially, there's really no emphasis on judges. Do you notice that? There's no emphasis. But then it's such a major part of our everyday life. Once you get once you get out there, um, know your judges. Know your judges. Speak to your colleagues. Uh, ask around. But really, the only way to to get that information is to is to do it. So, how important is it then that um, when you practice criminal law, that you're out there, you're in the court system, as opposed to as we are now, at least in this province. I'm not sure how it is in Quebec, but at least how we are now, pretty much practicing remotely throughout the course of this pandemic. It makes it more difficult. It does. It makes it more difficult. Uh, you know, there's other ways of communicating. There are text threads and email chains, and um, Ottawa is a fairly, for, you know, for a big city, it's a fairly small criminal bar. Every, every, there's everyone knows each other, and, and everyone communicates, and we share information. Um, but there's something lost. Uh, I've, I've certainly felt it over the last year and a half of not being at the courthouse, where if there's a problem that comes up or you have a question. The first person you see, you walk up to them and you say, hey, I got this in front of this person. What do you think? Or you know, I'm dealing with this crown on this issue. What do you think? And more often than not, that person will have some experience that, that's, uh, that's of value to you in the moment. That's somebody you may or may not reach out to because you wouldn't think to reach out to them. But when you see them, you, 
you might ask them. Well, it's, it also seems less intrusive to just walk up to someone and, you know, a, a quick chat as opposed to putting it in um, a text message or an email, which maybe puts a bit more, um, is a bit a bigger ask maybe on their, on an imposition on their time, especially if it's not someone you're particularly close with, just someone that you know. So, um, but, but a lot of, of the learning process and dealing with an unforeseen situation in the moment is being there and having people around you, you can bounce ideas off. It's a non-problem in Quebec since we were only uh, confined for three months at the beginning of the and pandemic. It didn't really stop. No. Well, three months, and then it was back to normal. So as of June of 2020, courthouses reopened. Uh, we are able to proceed remotely, um, but we're also, and we're not required to do so. We're able to go in person, and um, I would say for the more important stuff, when there are witnesses and, and when we're proceeding, most lawyers do it in person. So we haven't lost that as much as probably Ontario, that human contact with, uh, with colleagues and judges. So what's, what's it like in court in Quebec? Are there plexiglass or plexiglasses, masks are mandatory. Um, we do ask, they do expect for, uh, accused and I'm talking criminal law now. I don't know how it works in civil or family matters, but they do expect for, uh, accused people to show up only when it's necessary. We try to reduce as much as possible the amount of people in courthouses. But if not, you know, same, um, same probably as Ontario with plexiglasses and masks and social distancing. I was in Brampton court yesterday for the first time in well over 18 months. And for those who practice in this jurisdiction, Brampton court is... They say it's the busiest courthouse in Canada. I wouldn't be surprised. From the moment you walk through the door, it's generally like wall-to-wall people everywhere. It's it's pretty crazy. And there was nobody there. It was a ghost town. I was the only people there were my clients, family members and just very strange and odd environment. I I attended uh, in person at the Ottawa courthouse really fairly regularly since January to about May. Um, for in-custody trials. And there's something weird and almost sad about it, an empty courthouse. It's, 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 it, it just it feels morbid. Um, it's, it's, it, know, the I mean, only... it's not a fun place, but when there's life in it, um, there's, there's an energy in it. it. It makes being there a lot more exciting and fun. But when it's, when it's empty, it's kind of like a mausoleum. I mean, the only time I find in the normal course when courthouses were empty was on a Friday afternoon. If you're stuck there on a Friday, it's three thirty, and it's like to be all alone. <laughs> it's a nice day, especially if it's a nice day. You're you're probably going to be alone, but you don't feel so bad because you know you're doing you're doing work, right? You're working, and sometimes it it sucks. But now you know you show up there on a Thursday morning and it's empty. It's like ghost town. Ugh. Um. What lawyer, <clears throat> what lawyer do you feel privileged to have seen litigate before the end of their career or even as they practice? Um, I, I thought about this too. There's, there's two, there's two things I think you can take from watching, um, experienced counsel. Um, and some of it is entertainment value and some of it is, 
informative. Um, a lot of the older guard, uh, let's call it, a lot of the, the styles of practice and the advocacy that were used, let's say, 30, 40 more years ago, don't really translate now, uh, but it was cool to see. Um, I remember first year law school, we had a teacher cancel a class and uh, a couple of uh, a couple of us were just like, hey, let's just walk to the Supreme Court and just check out what's happening, completely just on a whim. And it just so happened that on that day, uh, both Greenspan brothers were arguing an extradition case, and we're sitting there in the in the benches um, in the Supreme Court, and Eddie Greenspan gets up, and it's just these cracking jokes. There, the judges are laughing, the justices are laughing. They're asking him questions. He's ducking the questions, like I mean, just completely not going out of his way not to answer the question. Um, some of the justices intervene and say, you know, you didn't really answer that that judge's question. He goes, yeah, no, I'm, and I'm going to get to it. I promise I'm going to get to it and then never gets to it. So uh, it was, that was really neat to watch for the, for the show of it. Um, I, I wouldn't recommend that as a, as a practicing style unless uh, you, you were uh, Eddie Greenspan. Uh, and then I, I was uh, fortunate um, uh, to, to uh, I, when I started my, when I, I got called to the bar, I started as a sole practitioner I was writing office space from uh, James Ford, who's an Ottawa lawyer, and uh, I, you know, I, I, I think I first met him. He came to one of my trial ad classes, and I was kind of, you know, I, I got a sense like, you know, this, this guy's pretty interesting. And and I and I, what I really appreciated is, I mean, he's I think he's a fantastic lawyer, um, but his, you know, he had a style that I I obviously I, I can't mimic, but there are parts of it in terms of his preparation and his. His his abilities to to keep thoughts both organized and loose enough to be to be fluid in both cross examination and submissions and dialogues with with judges that I I, I over the course of several years that I um, had the benefit of of being in that office uh, learned a lot from. What about you, Val? Joseph Lalegia, uh, still practicing <clears throat> lawyer that I worked with for uh, over twelve years. He pretty much taught me everything I know now and uh, respect him gratefully. And uh, so he's, um, his style, his, his way of doing cross-examinations, his strategy, his facility, his, the, 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 how he's capable of... Um, Um, how he's capable of analyzing a case very quickly um, and most importantly his ability to tell stories and I think it helped him ultimately in his practice very respected by uh, all judges and to to go back to what Biagio was saying um, stuff like uh, Greenspan's making jokes in front of the Supreme Court and you obviously have to have a few years of practice to be able to do that and obviously it's not something that any young lawyer should 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 do at the beginning of their career but when you're able to get to that point I think it's the um, ultimate proof that you've established your reputation and that you're capable of bringing this practice to another level more fun level Valerie Acosta and Biagio del Greco I can't thank you enough for taking of the time to come to the Log Raj and share your experiences with our listeners. 
continuing legal education can take various forms and i believe that there's something to gain just from talking to our colleagues which is something that i've really missed throughout the pandemic as uh, you both may have guessed i can't thank you enough for taking the time to travel in to toronto sit down with us and spend this afternoon together it was truly a pleasure really thank you marco same i'm really happy to be here it was uh like you said it was these moments where we get to actually talk anymore is uh are kind of rare now so i was happy to do it so before we go is there anything either of you want to plug or let us know where we can find you well if you're in need of a lawyer or uh you know anybody to help out in montreal valerie acosta at g l t avoca a v o c a t s dot com that's my email address i want to plug this podcast and you marco for the hard work you put into it if anyone that listens to this sees marco on the streets give him a shout out for the the hard work and the great spread he put out for us here today thanks thank you for listening to the law garage podcast if you're new to the podcast please check out season one and follow us on twitter and instagram at the law garage our production crew includes executive producer jason cooper and associate producers christina zdow and remy sansonwall the law garage is a j mike podcast production